Blog Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And today I am happy to uh, go with an angle that we unfortunately have not had enough of on this podcast, uh, and that is Negro League Baseball and uh, Negro League Baseball from a Brooklyn perspective. And uh, without further ado, I will welcome uh, on a, a historian of sorts uh, regarding the Negro League and the African-American baseball experience, and that will be uh, Phil S. Dixon. Uh, he is a co-founder and current board member of the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, Missouri, and he has written numerous books on baseball, including the upcoming book, the Dizzy and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour, Race, Media, and America's National Pastime. Without further ado, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good morning, Sam. It's a pleasure. Uh, and the way we always like to start with our first guest is kind of give us a little bit of your own personal history as well as your, your baseball history, how you got involved in the game and how you got involved in, in being a historian of Negro League Baseball. Yeah, well, you know, I grew up uh, playing baseball from probably from about the age of about third grade, and I fell in love with the game. And uh, I read a lot about the game. I would get the newspapers and clip out and make my own yearbooks, and that's kind of how it started. Uh, and it's been a lifelong pursuit. I've always enjoyed the numbers and statistical type of things. I've enjoyed the stories. And along the way, uh I would talk to people, and I became a storyteller myself. And, of course, uh, as a young person, I collected baseball cards. And so I think by the time I turned age 20, and uh, I turned age 20 in 1976, I had over 100,000 baseball cards. And so I knew a lot about baseball. And uh, so along the way also I discovered that uh, the African-American player, of which I am an African-American, played on all black teams almost all of my life, were poorly represented. And uh, with the exception of a few stores like Satchel Page or Cool Papa Bill or, you know, Josh Gibson, you know, uh, people didn't talk about the rest of the team. And I know no one man is a team, uh, especially in the great game of baseball. And so that's kind of started me to writing. And I released my uh, first book in 1992. It was called The Negro Baseball League's A Photographic History. And that effort won me a Casey Award. It's the best baseball book of the year. I think there were about 150 baseball books that came out that year, and that kind of put me on the map. And I've been writing ever since and uh, trying to bring good literature to the marketplace and uh, trying to define a history in a way that it has not been talked about correctly. And before we get into the history of it all, uh, um, it kind of just immediately made me jump to what the current African-American experience in baseball is. Uh, with you know the current game, I, I'm, I'm just I'm curious what your your angle is because I know a lot of people have talked about uh, trying to to get just specifically you know there, there's a lot of uh, black people in baseball, but a lot of them are of course uh, of, of uh, Latin descent at this point, and it has been well discussed about the the African American player. Uh, not being well represented in baseball. What's your take on on where the the game currently stands? Well, as always, I have an interesting take on it. Well, first of all, uh, when you go back to the era of the Negro baseball leagues, there were no other professional sports uh, that you could make a living at 
primarily, you know, uh, like you could baseball. So a lot of African Americans have gravitated to baseball. So if you if you figure African Americans are thirty percent of the population in in America, uh, and today you've got so many uh, African Americans playing baseball and so many playing basketball. Primarily, I think it's fair to say that you have more African Americans playing sports today, but it's just not baseball. But uh, I think when people give the baseball argument, what they don't realize is you have to take in consideration the other sports, and then actually the population has not increased. So if you think about things like incarceration, how many African-American men are incarcerated, that type of thing, actually our numbers in professional sports are larger than ever, just not baseball. Yeah, and of course you have your exceptions. I mean, uh, you know, for, for me, I uh, I think about my Mets team and uh, Marcus Stroman, who is uh, uh, from Long Island himself, has just been brought onto uh, the New York Mets and you know, it, it for for me, I, I I really do appreciate when I see a player of, of his ilk and especially his emotion uh, with uh, uh, an African American uh, descent. I I I don't know exactly what his background is, but uh, being from Long Island and and um, he he's uh, uh, he's got you know it, it doesn't I don't believe that he. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure he was born in Long Island, and he doesn't have uh, much of an accent of any of any sort. So, um, you know, I, I obviously there's exceptions. Of course, there's exceptions, but but it, it it's moments like that, like Tim Anderson of the White Sox. You know, it it, it seems to be making some strides because these are rev- relatively young players. Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of uh, good African American players in baseball. Always has been, and. Uh, and I think it always will continue to be. But with the other sports there, and I can say they're more glamorous in that, you know, if you go to a high school basketball game, you'll get a great crowd at the average school. Go to the football game, you'll get a great crowd. You go to the baseball game, it's a few girlfriends and a couple of parents. So um, all of that drives uh, what people decide to do. But uh, if you you enjoy baseball, there's room enough for you in baseball and uh, and uh, so, uh, but I think right now those other sports are a, a bit more ga- glamorous in, in that um, they allow you to also participate at a high level and do some other things. And uh, so uh, I think baseball is going to continue to lag behind uh, for a while anyway. Yeah, and, you know, I, I know that you're involved in uh, RBI, which is uh, trying to revive baseball in inner cities. How is that program going? Oh, it's going very good. Uh, actually, I'm also a high school baseball coach. I coached in RBI for a number of years. Actually, I've coached in a bunch of different leagues over my lifetime, probably 35 years total. Uh, but it's it's going good. Uh, in inner city, uh, they're building nice parks and uh so uh, that makes it fun to play here in Kansas City. We have the Urban Youth Academy uh, out behind the uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And it uh, gets a lot of uh, young people interested in baseball. Um, so uh, the urban the urban effort, I think, has come along fine. Uh, but once again, you know, you got to consider uh, urban football and urban basketball are doing just fine as well. <laughs> and, and it's tough right now. The, the way that the leagues are structured and the and the training is structured, 
to try to play more than one sport, which, you know, you go back a few, two or three generations, a lot of guys did that. They go from football to basketball to baseball to wrestling or whatever they wanted to do, track and field, and uh, maybe play summer baseball, that type of thing. So, But now children have to specialize more. So just a whole different uh, ball game, if I can use that phrase. Yeah, and, of course, when you mention, you know, going from sport to sport, I always think of Bo Jackson, who it's just remarkable. Anytime I, I get to catch a clip, I, I retweet it, if, if, it's, uh, if it's via Twitter. I mean, you know, he, he was just spectacular, but I don't want to go on a tangent with Bo Jackson because it's easy to do that. Um, <laughs> I, so let's, let's go back. Let's, let's go all the way back to uh, what the, uh, the era that we're discussing. And um, we'll, we'll start with your, your book coming out uh, on August 22nd, the Disney and Daffy Dean Barnstorming Tour. Uh, race media in America's national pastime. Um, and, and I know that, you know, we're obviously from a Brooklyn perspective and you had a bit of a Brooklyn angle regarding this uh, barnstorming tour. Yes. Uh, after the uh, 1934 world series, uh, the Detroit Tigers and the St. Louis Cardinals played in that world series. And of course, um, probably most people know that uh, Dizzy and Daffy Dean, in case they don't know, they won all four games in the uh, world series. And, um, they had also won 49 games during the regular season. Dizzy won 30. His brother won 19. So they were two fabulous pitchers. I mean, uh, the, the winningest brother combination uh, ever. So uh, what they did was uh, after the World Series ended, they they got paid about $5,000 each for being in the World Series. But uh, it's the Depression. And uh, instead of just taking their checks and going home, they decided to go on a barnstorming tour against uh, some of the greatest African-American baseball teams in the country. So they started off with six games against the Kansas City Monarchs, and then they went uh, from there. They went to uh, Philadelphia, and they played the Philadelphia Stars. Then they went over to Brooklyn, and uh, they played the um, New York Black Yankees there right in Brooklyn. Played them over in Patterson, New Jersey. And then from there, they went to uh, uh, Columbus, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh and uh, finished up against the uh, uh, Pittsburgh Crawfords, where Dizzy saw Satchel Paige uh, pitching for the first time and was uh, quite fabulous. And uh, so the actual, there is a game that took place in Brooklyn, and uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable game. So what I did was, in talking about this Bornstorming series, I went back and analyzed all that had been written about the series, and what I realized was a couple of things. Uh, uh, the newspaper reports that were coming out in 1934 uh, were pretty loaded with a lot of agenda-type uh, related articles. Basically, uh, they weren't going to give any of the African-American players credit for what they did against the deans, that type of thing. And then after I finished that, I pulled all the current books that have written about the series and some of these books from from publishers who are national nationally recognized publishers and I just found all type of wrong and misleading information and uh, so um, taking that in consideration oh one one other thing I might mention you might find this fascinating the 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 premise of the book I had basically written in 1996 and about uh, the misrepresenting uh, of the media in this in this history. And uh, pretty much nobody was interested. I tried to pitch it, no one was interested. Well, a few years ago when uh, this new term, fake news, came out, 
I said, well, you know, heck, that's nothing new. Let me go ahead and pull my book off the shelf and pitch it again. And so I, I dressed it up a little bit more and uh, pitched it again, and uh, it took this time. And uh, so I'm hoping that people will read this and, and get a different point of view about how sports are written about, how stars are made in America. Yeah, that, that's going to that's gonna be a fascinating read for sure. And, and it is nice that people are still reading, you know. We, we keep hearing about how, you know, everybody's just on their phones, everybody is just glued to the, to, uh, the TV. Uh, but, you know, books are, books are still selling. People still tout, uh, you know, the New York Times bestselling list. And, of course, Amazon uh, still has uh, lots of books out. Oh, sure, sure. And, and you know, there's a thing, you know, when you go back and examine some of the things that were long held as, as truths for us. For instance, I'll give you one in the book. Uh, and and I didn't discover this, but someone else discovered it. I read about it originally in uh, one of the baseball, uh, I'm sorry, baseball digest back, back in the 70s that Dizzy Dean didn't win 30 games. And so it gave me a chance to go back and revisit that. And the truth is, he did not win 30 games by today's rules and by the rules of that time. So he actually won 28. Hmm. But all huh. our life, we've heard he won 30. So he gave me a chance to talk right. about that. And so uh, and this is just, it's, it's it's just, just, it's just one of many things, huh? Go ahead. No, no, no. I just said that's perfect. Go ahead. Yeah, so it's it's just one of many things that I talk about in the book, uh, and and you know, and let me mention Brooklyn there. Uh, Dizzy came to Brooklyn. Actually, he brought uh, one of his teammates with him, Ducky Medwick. You've probably heard of him. He's a Hall of Famer. And uh, that night, Medwick struck out four times in a row uh, by a, a pitcher by the name of John Nick Stanley. And even that was misrepresented in the paper. So, so most of the newspapers never said that he struck out four times in a row, which he did. And um, he's in the Hall of Fame, and most people have never heard of John Neck Stanley unless you're just a real, real student of the Negro League Baseball. But uh, there in Brooklyn, uh, Brooklyn had a history of uh, going back to 1904 with uh, John Connors and uh, his team, the uh, Royal Giants, and Later on, uh, Jess and Rod McMahon. Uh, you've probably heard of the wrestler, the uh, the uh, wrestling organization run by the McMahons. Well, anyway, yes, uh, his grandfather, <laughs> yeah, his grandfather owned the Lincoln Giants back in 1911. Oh, wow! And he had them playing in Br- uh, Brooklyn. And of course, uh, the uh, early uh, history of the Bushland, uh, Brooklyn Bushwicks which was Max Rosner's team. They started over in Cypress Hill, and uh, later on they came uh, to New York. And, uh, and um, of course, there's a great history behind this Dexter Park there in New York where uh, many Negro League teams came to play, and um, the Bushwicks, of course, it was their home field. And what's interesting about this, this home field, uh, this Dexter Park, uh, Dexter Park had an electric lighting system in 1930, you know, Brooklyn's uh, Ebbets Field didn't get one until 1938. So that's eight years later. Of course, Yankee Stadium wasn't lit until 1946. So they had uh, something that made fans want to come out. And so it was no problem for them to get 10, 15,000 people to some of their games because they had a unique 
element there. So that's who uh, Dizzy, he comes and he plays at uh, Dexter Park. See, that's, that's a fascinating angle to take, too, because obviously there's a lot of players that don't get recognition, and, and we could never know what they would have done against Major League Baseball. We can only speculate. <clears throat> but it's, it's the public relations perspective, too, uh, right up your alley, uh, that never gets spoken about, too. Of course, Larry McPhail uh, of, of the Brooklyn uh, Dodgers in 1938 uh, gets heralded for bringing night baseball to Brooklyn, and of course Johnny Vandermeer's second straight no hitter that night. Uh, That's but right. It, it, but nobody nobody talks about the fact that the Negro League had been doing things to you know, and obviously this is to get fans in and uh, consider obviously in the hot steamy summer maybe people would enjoy uh, baseball under under lights uh, when it's not as hot. Um, it, it, you know, it, it's these these things that are the unheralded, unsung elements of of Negro League baseball not getting its fair fair due in media. Yeah, yeah, and you know, even when I was growing up, you know, like I was a great student of baseball, and the first thing you know, I would hear about the first Major League night baseball game uh, over at Cincinnati's Crosley Field, and I would hear about that. That was 1935. And um, basically, that was all you heard. You know, that's that was the history that was out there. And, you know, you would have never heard about, you know, Dexter Park. And uh, so, uh, and also, the Kansas City Monarchs played a major role in the, the innovation of night baseball. That's a whole story by itself. And uh, so, you know, there's a great history there. And, and there's lots of history that either has been misconstrued um, are just not told. And, and I'll give you another example that I write about in the Dean book. In the Dean book, I can tell you every hotel they stayed in all 14 nights uh, as they toured across the nation. And uh, But I cannot tell you one single hotel any of the black teams stayed in uh, during that same tour. I can tell you what the Deans made for every game, but I can't tell you what the black teams made at all. Uh, I can tell you where the Deans ate where they had dinner and lunch, sometime breakfast. But I guess I can't tell you about any of the black players where they ate or anything. So it's like they just showed up, and the history is just really flawed with these type of things. And so I try to put it in perspective and show you why it's flawed. And, and uh, That's basically great. Yeah. correcting it. Uh, I, I that's that's fantastic, and and I look forward to reading it for sure. Uh, um, you mentioned the Brooklyn Royal Giants, and I know the Mets have worn their uniforms at some point. And uh, it, you know, so so let's start with the Brooklyn Royal Giants and kind of uh, uh, bounce off of how many different Negro League teams there were in Brooklyn, uh, if you could. And and what what I find remarkable about the Brooklyn Royal Giants is. You know, they, they, one of the reasons the Mets went with them was because of how, or, you know, colorful it was. It was, it was orange and blue. Um, and, and what, you know, to me, like having seen all of these, these uh, most of these photos are all uh, black and white, of course. Um, and and yeah. you forget how vibrant uh, a lot of the presentation of baseball has been back from a fashion perspective over the, the years. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, uh, Connors, who was the owner of the team, you know, Connors, had, you know, any year he was going to have uh, three sets of uniforms that were interchangeable. 
Now, uh, that didn't come to the major leagues until maybe 80 years later. But Connor was, was doing that in 1905. Matter of fact, in 1920, he had five sets of uniforms that were interchangeable. So they could take, you know, this is this is very colorful baseball from the uniform standpoint where most teams they're going to be wearing back then, your basic uh, red, blue, green type of thing like that. But um, he could mix and match his colors. And when the Brooklyn Royal Giants would come in and they play a five-game series, and during the 1920s they change uniforms every night, people would come out just to see what they were wearing. So uh, I guess the major leagues, they could have, Picked any uniform they wanted to <laughs> from the Brooklyn team. Let's get it's a colorful <laughs> history. One of the no, things no I love about the name. Exactly, exactly. So for one thing, I, I I think that like with all these colorful jerseys like the 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 Mets uh, orange and blue, when you saw them in the Royal Giants, you're like, well, well, can you just go with the pants? Kind of like like the the Pittsburgh Pirates, you know, the colorful yellow. Or even black pants, which must have been excruciating in the middle of the summer, though. But at least, like, like it, it, it always looks very weird. And going with with your hometown, whenever the uh, Kansas City Royals would wear their powder blue uniforms, but with white pants, it just doesn't look right. Right, right. You know, trying to match colors uh, <laughs> can be a dilemma. Um, but you know, hey, it, it was something that people people thought was unique and uh, you know you had to come up in those days you know the, the African-American teams traveling they didn't get any concessions or or you know any parking or anything like that so it was all had to come through the gate so if you could draw people into the gate by maybe you know um, being, being a little humorous on the field maybe a little flashy on the field uh, mixing your uniforms, uh, you know, that type of thing, you could draw bigger crowds, and that's how you managed to stay around, of course. And the, the mo- more than anything, they had great players. They should have been in the major leagues, many of them Hall of Famers, who never got that day. Yeah, it, it's it's sad. You know, somebody posted a, a comment that said, I wish I could have seen a Negro League game. And I said that same, but I wish that we didn't even have to discuss having to see a Negro League game, having to see it separate. That it should have never, it should have never been a point. But, you know, and, and that that's, it was obviously a, a vibrant, viable uh, African-American businesses. Uh, and, and, but, but, you know, when, Major League started to to uh, desegregate. Uh, obviously, it became it, it 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 suffered the bottom line for the Negro Leagues, but but it was it was a pain that that the owners were willing to take, of course. Sure, sure. Well, the owners are forced into it uh, because you know you really want to get down to it that it never should have been a Negro League. There never should have been segregation in this country, but it was. And so at the time when uh, they had a chance to integrate, and, and this happens all the time. I see this in the city, you know, uh, uh, many teams, they just cherry-picked. So what they did was they took the best African-American players off those teams and put sign them to minor league contracts or the major league contracts. And so what you had left were unknown recruits, and some of them were pretty good, you know, Ernie Banks, didn't get there until 1950. 50, he played for, in 1950, 
and they came back in 1953 with the Monarchs or Hank Aaron in 52 and those kind of guys who eventually got to the big leagues, but they were recruits. They were unheard of. So all the established stars were pretty much uh, cherry-picked uh, by the major league teams. So nobody knew what to expect when they went to see a Negro League team. And they did their best to hang on for as long as they could. And uh, uh, some teams did better than others, but it was a history that was destined to come to an end in the way that it, it was. And the major leagues had a history that was destined to come to an end the way it was established. And uh, I think that's actually a good segue uh, to, to Branch Rickey. I, um, you know, he obviously is all the time heralded for, for the, uh, bo- both the, the moral uh, a moves he made as well as the business moves he made, you know, which it, it, we we have to can't be undersold how uh, much of a, a of a businessman Branch Rickey was, and uh, I, I I'm wondering uh, I'm a little I'm a little in the the um, the dark about some of the early part of of bringing Jackie Robinson over he he, he um, created or or, or pretended to create a, a Negro League team. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, actually, uh, I don't know if he was pretending or if he really had thought about it at one time, but, yeah, he um, they were thinking about maybe organizing a Negro League, and they actually had gotten some people. matter of fact, I know Gus Greenlee uh, of the Pittsburgh Crawfers was willing to get in on it. And, um, and so – People thought he was recruiting for his league, but uh, I don't know if he was going to do the league or if at some point he he changed his mind or if he was never going to do a league, but he, it was rumored that he was going to do a league, and it had been publicized that he was going to do a league. So uh, right, exactly. Jackie uh, Robinson, and, and Jackie thought he was recruiting him for his uh, new Negro League team. <laughs> Right, of course, and and, and then he, he dropped the bombshell that he was looking for him for the uh, the Dodgers, and the rest is history, of course. So, um, right. in terms of Brooklyn and, and those teams, um, well, you know, other than all the different teams that that did exist, it sounds like there were at least uh, over the course of the history three or four. Is that correct? No, no, there was more than three or four. You mean now when you say mm-hmm. three or four, uh, be more specific. What do you mean? Of of Negro League teams that that came through Brooklyn. Oh no no, almost everybody came through Brooklyn. Uh, see, if, if you go back to the uh, turn of the century, around 1910, right through there, up through 1920, there were two cities that all the African American ball players were trying to get to, and that was Chicago, and that was New York, or you know, and Brooklyn's part of New York there, so. Uh, if later on they had an all-star game, it was called the East-West game. And really, the East-West game came out of the history of Chicago versus New York. So, yeah, um, I, w- I would say about anybody who was a great ball player came through there at one time or another. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, you had teams like the Kansas City Monarchs, 1939. They're playing doubleheaders there, you know, uh, the 14 doubleheaders. Um, this, the Memphis Red Sox were playing 14 doubleheaders in New York in 1938. So, you know, 
there's a, there's there's a wealth of history in both those cities, New York and Chicago, uh, of uh, African American participation in baseball at a very high level. And of course, uh, it seems like the the most famous Negro League teams, uh, the the ones that are talked about the most, the Kansas City Monarchs, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, the Homestead Braves. Uh, so from a Brooklyn perspective, and, and the same can be said for the players, Satchel Page, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, names you've mentioned uh, already here. So uh, are there any names that are uh, that you can think of uh, who played for Brooklyn, uh, uh, any of the teams in Brooklyn that, that have, have really stood out to you in your, your research? Oh, man. Yeah, well, we, we, first of all, you've got to talk about the New York Black Yankees. And if you want to take it from the year that Dizzy came through, of course, they lasted, you know, much longer than that. Uh, Dizzy Dean comes through in 1934. They're organized in 1931. Um, but uh, And then they go up through about 1949, 50, right in there. But, you know, you're going to have people like uh, Connie Rector, who was a great player, a great pitcher, or um, you got Roy Williams and Bill Holland. And, and then lefty uh, John Lee Stanley, the one who struck out uh, – Met with four times, and then of course Rev Kennedy. I talk about him. George Scales, or how about John Beckwith? He was the first African American player, actually the first man to hit a home run out of Cincinnati's uh, Redland Stadium, completely out of the park. Uh, Clint Thomas, or, uh, Clint Thomas, matter of fact, against the Deans, he stole home on Dizzy, which no one had ever done before. And of course they had Bill Yancey and Fat Jink, Fat Jenkins, and uh, Jenkins. And Yancey, uh, they both played basketball. So they were playing from the New York Renaissance. So there was a lot of history there. And you know, and, and this this gave me an opportunity, the Dean book, to talk about the New York Black Yankees. And also it gave me a chance to talk about Branch Rickey, too, because, you know, he was the general manager of the uh, St. Louis Cardinals in 1934. So I talked considerably about him and uh, some things that probably people hadn't considered before. So it's It'll be some. It's an interesting take on Branch Rickey as well. Maybe I can inspire you uh, to write your, your next book, being uh, of the Negro Leagues of New York and Brooklyn. Well, <laughs> I've I've got it covered. <laughs> uh, I did write I did write a book about uh, the uh, Rube Foster, and uh, and uh, there's a, quite a few things about Chicago in there. I haven't actually written one that covers New York as much as this one does. Uh, but my photographic history introduced a lot of people to various players. And, and I'll tell you why that book was an important book. This was 1992 when I released it. Once again, people are only talking about the, the guys that were in the Hall of Fame at, at that time. There were about eight or nine guys. And they act like no one else existed. And they act like the only baseball that took place was either in New York, Chicago, or, you know, Kansas City, some city of a major metropolitan area. And so what I did was I started to talk about teams in these small towns. I started to talk about games in these small towns. And I started talking about the rest of the roster. And believe me, it changed the way that people looked at uh, Negro League Baseball. And, uh, and uh, most, you know, I probably never get credit for that. But if you look at the books before my book and look at them after, you'll see certainly that I made an impact. As uh, well you should, and it's clear how vast your your knowledge of, of the Negro Leagues is, and I, I so greatly appreciate being able to pick your brain about it. And 
you know, uh, we don't have much time left, but of course, it. I, I know that we could just go on and on about it, and, and I look forward to doing it. You're you're welcome back anytime, and, and we'll we'll figure out when we can continue this conversation. But let, let's end with the uh, uh, the Negro League Museum. Uh, speaking of which, uh, like you said, you know, there, there's uh, how many Negro leagues are uh, Negro League players are in the Hall of Fame now? The the Major League Hall of Fame. Uh, I think it's it's in I think it's thirty somewhere around thirty uh, that are there now. I don't have the exact number. Um, and you know, in two thousand six, uh, they had a number go in, a great number to go in together. So, uh, but it's right around thirty. But it it doesn't nearly represent some of the players who are left out. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I recently saw something online. People asking that, who do you think should be in the Hall of Fame from the Negro? leagues uh, that are not in the Hall of Fame, and I can think of five of them without batting an eye. And, and, and how about this? One of them was the manager of the Brooklyn Royal Giants, Grand Home Run Johnson. Huh. And if you yep, could elaborate on Home Run Johnson. Home Run Johnson, i tell you what. Home Run Johnson, I'll I tell you this, and, and this, this will be an open and shut case once you hear this. Uh, 1894, he hit 60 home runs with a dead ball. Huh. Open and shut. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> and he was the first 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 uh, player nicknamed home run. So, uh, right. He was a great player. Yeah, Grand Home Run Johnson should be out of Philly, Ohio. What is it? Home Run Baker hit like 12. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. Right? And, you know, like with me, I, I love baseball history. And, and when I go places, you know, uh, uh, I think sometimes people think they can sneak a white player or a white uh, maybe uh, Major League Baseball fact past me. But, uh, you know, I've sat with this subject all my life. So I just love baseball, and I love getting in discussions about baseball. But you're right, home run baker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's um, no, I, I, I definitely knew that you were going to know who uh, Homeland Baker was for sure. Uh, oh, <laughs> wasn't oh, trying to sneak, wasn't trying to sneak him past you like a curveball for sure. But well, um, <laughs> it happens. It happens all the time uh, when I'm out uh, speaking. Right. Matter of fact, I did a, I did a 200 city tour from uh, 2014 uh, mm. to 20, uh, 2018, and my whole purpose in doing that tour was through using baseball to improve race relations. And so I went into places that probably they hadn't seen an African-American come and speak in some of these small towns in, in a generation. And uh, I used baseball as a way to bring people together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly been tough on race relations in America here. And, uh, you know, but I, I'm, I think baseball can be a unifying force, and uh, I've tried to use it like that. So uh, I'm real proud of the 200-city tour. I think it's one of the greatest things I did. But I'll probably get uh, less publicity from it than anything. <laughs> yeah, let's run with that, too, uh, as well. Um, you did not take a plane during this 200-city tour. Is that correct? That's correct. I drove it to keep it authentic. And um I, I wanted to get the feel of those highways and uh, just like the Negro Leaguers who traveled by bus did. And uh, so I, I drove the whole thing. I did 17 states and I also uh, did a trip to Canada and um, and uh, went up into uh, 
uh, Saskatchewan province there, and Regina, Saskatoon, Estevan. And so I was all over. And, and, and I didn't get east uh, past, uh, let's see, I was in uh, Zanesville, Ohio, Wheeling, West Virginia. That was as further east as I got Got down south, uh, and I was through Mississippi. Uh, never got into Texas, but I was all over Oklahoma. Texas is just a just a whole different animal by itself. It's so large, but uh, but it was it was a fun trip. I met you know I figured that I probably talked to individually maybe ten thousand people uh, during that during that whole experience, and uh, uh, just met some great baseball fans all over the country, and sometimes in just little small places. That you would never expect. And what are what was like maybe two or three small towns that really stood out to you that that you know don't get enough love? Uh, Dexter, Kansas. I went to Dexter, Kansas. A population three hundred something people. I was uh, speaking at a conference and I was going to Colorado and I said, Hey, look, I'm going to be cutting across Kansas, and I'd like to uh, maybe. I don't want to drive all the way from, you know, across the state. Uh, I would like to just stop and speak. And so they invited me to speak in Dexter, Kansas. So I go there, and it's a guy named, uh, oh, shucks, I'll call his name in a minute. Uh, but uh, he had played against the Monarchs in the 1940s, and he had never talked about it until I came there and asked him why he never talked about it. He said, no one ever asked me. And so uh, his name was Hoop Higgins. <laughs> And, and the, the best part of the story was this. I go to the town, and uh, it was harvest season. I had two-thirds of the town there watching my uh, presentation, right? They gave me great treatment. And, uh, you know, I thought that was it, right? Town 375 people, you know, no big deal, right? But then about a month later, I'm, I'm at home, and the Royals get a rain delay. And I was watching the ball game. I just got up when the rain delay came on. But then my telephone started ringing. People said, hey, you're on TV. So I'm on TV. Say, the Royals game. I said, well, so what am I doing on the Royals game? Say, they have a picture there with you and a guy named Hoop Higgins. Turns out somebody had taken a picture of Hoop Higgins, and it was his birthday, and they sent it in. And there I am with Hoop Higgins on the entire Royals network. And that's what you get from going to a town with 375 people. So this, it was just – it was just time after time after time um, that I ran into situations that were just as exciting as what happened with Hoop Higgins in uh, Dexter. Actually, I'm, I'm giving the wrong name. I'm saying Dexter. Let's make that McCracken, Kansas. Ah, okay. Okay. That's, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, and I'm with you on, on, you know, being a Lyft driver myself, I've really taken to uh, going from, you know, winding up in places that I never expected to see and, and you know, taking some, oh, sure. some photos and showing off the world on, on social media. And, uh, you know, it, it's <laughs> it's nice to can kind of combine the the new age of social media with, with you know, be, being able to get some of these, these images out, uh, you know, because you want to take it in on your own, of course, without always being behind the, the lens. Uh, but it's nice right. to to both. It's nice to both have that that uh, what it was like back in the day to go from town to town without planes, uh, as well as sharing with the the world in the modern medium form, uh, it, much in the same way you did with this uh, this barnstorming, your own personal barnstorming yeah. tour. Um, and and I, I, I let's yeah go ahead. I was, 
Well, I was going to tell you, when you went to some of these small towns, uh, many times the park that they played in is still there. And so I would take pictures of the park. Right, of course. And be, yeah, it's, and people would never think, you know, you know, maybe the bleachers have been torn down, that type of thing. They, you know, modernized. But the actual park they played in, the grounds are still there. And, and that's and not speaking the case of which, in the we don't have, cities. We don't have uh, too much time left, but you mentioned Patterson, okay. New Jersey, and the ballpark, uh, the ballpark is still there. Uh, that, that and, and there's not much being done with it, but I, I believe it's a historic landmark, which is why they can't they can't tear it down. I drive New Jersey for Lyft, and I, I've passed by the Patterson Park uh, plenty of times before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's interesting about that is the park that they're talking about, and they're they're planning on trying to do some different things with that particular field. But uh, that's where the Deans played the New York Black Yankees, 1934, fall of 34. So. I probably need to get there and help them raise some money for that uh, project. That's a great idea, and and considering that I, I drive around New Jersey all the time, maybe we can we can uh, pair up uh, regarding that. I'll, I'll I'll see if I can do some investigation. And, and total tangent with Patterson, New Jersey. Patterson is a fascinating little city. Uh, that that uh, you know it's it's a little downtrodden at this point, but but I I think that you know it's it's gotten. Uh, it, it's not talked about enough how uh, gorgeous it is from an, uh, an urban aesthetic perspective. And, of course, there's also uh, a, a national park over there uh, where there's an, a, a fantastic uh, uh, waterfall, uh, the Great Falls, they're called. All right. Well, that's, yes. that's, um, great, so, that's great history. <laughs> Exactly. So we'll we'll have to uh, run with that sometime. Uh, Phil, uh, again, we, we don't have too much time before we, uh, we're going to get cut off. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for, for coming on here. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would love to invite you back on at some point to uh, so we can elaborate a little bit on the Negro League Baseball Museum, uh, as well as keep talking some, uh, some Brooklyn Negro League history. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. You have a nice day. You as well, and thank you all for listening to the Veteran Sullivan Podcast. Have a great one. Take care.